Today we, you will find yourself in 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. Uh, excuse me. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 16. I was misreading there at the top of my page. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 16. The, the issue is, is I will start out with verses 13 through 16, and then we'll jump back to the first of that chapter. So uh, find your, if you'll find yourself there, we know that Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. And it's very important for us to understand that. Paul writes back to Timothy to encourage him in his leadership as the pastor of the church that he is in. This entire epistle that uh, Paul has written is to help direct Timothy in how to pastor a church and how to lead them well and how to guide them through the different intricacies of their lives because they all are from different places. And uh, today, in verses 1 and 2 that we'll get to in just a moment, we even find that some of the newfound believers were slaves. And I'll talk to you about what that means in just a moment. But there is a charge in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And as we look at that today, uh, we're going to look through a few different things to charge to, to graduates in particular is what I'm thinking about today. But this is also good for each and every one of us today. That God, through the writings, through how he inspired Paul to write, he gives us this charge. Some translations use the word urge. Some translations use the word command. But I urge you, I command you, I charge you is what the New Living Translation says. But I will read this to you. 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verses 13 through 16, it says, the Bible reads as this, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless unto the Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So we have this command or this charge. He says, I urge you in the sight of God. This first point that I'm going to start out with today is a charge through example. And he calls him to live a life of example. And for graduates, you need to live a life that is an example. And for all of us today, we all must live a life that is an exemplary life. One that is called by Christ. He says, I give this commandment uh, that you keep this commandment there in verse 14. He says that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. There, that is an exemplary life, a life that is without spot or blemish. God calls us to a higher standard than what he would normally, than, than the world is called to, obviously, because he calls us to be like Christ, be holy as I am holy. That's a much higher level of living than your everyday person who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, the commandment that's given, it, you can even look back into verses 11 and 12, and you see this command about how to live this life without spot or blameless. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. And you can look back further about the things to flee. But pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. 
fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the commandment to keep those things, to flee the previous things, and to pursue these other things. That's my final point. So I'm not going to dive in right there yet, but we'll get back there in just a minute. But this is the commandment to live by. This is the command to keep without spot, as the scripture says, without spot, blameless to the Lord Jesus Christ appearing. This is the commandment to keep. And if you think about it, it's the whole totality of 1 Timothy. Who is the man of God here that Paul is writing? To whom is he writing? Timothy. That's the name of the letter. Timothy didn't write this book. Paul wrote this book to Timothy. So the man of God that Paul is writing to is Timothy. It's the young pastor at the church. I take this very seriously. I need to read this. Every new beginning pastor needs to read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are books, these are epistles that are written to pastors. They're called the pastoral epistles for pastors to read and grow and be like these guys, okay? Um, and Paul affirms, Paul confirms the audience to which the man of God is making this vow. The audience is God. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and also Christ Jesus. He says, these are the two these are the two people to which I urge you to, to hold account to. And our lives are held accountable before God the Father and Christ Jesus. And it says he witnessed a good uh, account, a good witness, a good confession before Pontius Pilate. What it's saying is he lived without sin. He lived this very life without spot and blameless. That's how he lived. Now, we know we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. It's not going to happen. But... The pursuit of that life is how we should live. We should pursue that life. Yes, is it attainable on this side of heaven? Perfection in mankind? No, it is not. We saw Christ do that. Christ did that. He's on a totally different level. But yet for us, we should pursue that every day of our lives. To be Christ-like as much as we can be. It goes on, I mean, he really defines out Christ and God the Father. He says, um, Christ, we need to keep this life without spot and blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing there in verse 14. And then in verse 15, it kind of it tells us, um, it says, which he will manifest in his own time. Scripture tells us we don't know the day or the hour that he will return. Only the Father knows. Christ doesn't even know when the Father is going to tell him to come back to get his bride. So until he returns, we live this life in this way, holy and blameless. And we live this way. And God's called us to that. And why do we live that way? Because he is the blessed and only potentate. He is the blessed and only king of kings and lord of lords. He is the only one who is immortal. He is the only one living in unapproachable life. This is who he is. And this is how we receive salvation. And then once we receive salvation, he is our example. Granted, you may have people in your life that you say, this person, I want to model my life after this person. You hold them high in high esteem. But that person is not Jesus. That person is not to whom you say, I devote my life to mimic or model my life after this one individual. We model our lives after Christ. 
Now, don't get me wrong. You can get some good insight, and you need to. We've got plenty of wisdom in this body of believers. You need to go to them and say, you know, how, how do you live a, a, a good life? How do you live in such a way that brings honor and glory to God? How do you live? And, and I mean, we look around. I think about Mr. and Ms. Shore, and we've got several others in this room who've had long-lasting marriages. You say, how do you keep a good, Christian, faithful uh, marriage alive? How do you do those things? We, that's the reason why we, we have been blessed with those that are senior saints in here. How do you deal with, you know, at some point, we all may deal with this, and we've got several of our congregations dealt with that, you know, uh, the, the loss of a spouse. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the loss of a child? How do you deal with, with, with the changing times? How do you deal with this? You go to them because they've lived an exemplary life. You don't go to somebody whose life's been terrible and you say, man, how do you live a life like yours? You know, you know what I mean? I don't go to people that, 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 that have been incarcerated multiple times and say, man, how do you live a life like yours? You know, I'm not trying to be mean. If, if, if you've dealt with that, praise God. Maybe you've come out of that. God's changed your life and you're living a, a, a life that glorifies God and you're, and you're obeying him. But I'm, I'm telling you this, you want to go to those who, who have lived a life. And I'm not saying they live a life of abundance of wealth or abundance of travel or whatever it may be. But you go to those that you see and you say, hey, I have seen your life and your life is exemplary in how you've devoted yourself to Christ. That's what we do. And, and as we think about that, when, when coming to Christ, it's this example that we see. We see the example of Christ. When coming to Christ, there is a dying to self. There is a submission to our Lord's commands and his orders. And the Lord charges us, as I've read here through Paul's inspired writing, to keep the commands given in, those, in these passages that I've mentioned already. And the idea is to go on the charge to live an exemplary life, a life that is spotless and blameless. And we will not be without sin, as I've said before, but we can live an honest life where our sins are small and our God is big. We can live an honest life where our sins are small and our God is big. If you live a dishonest life, your sins are going to be big and you're going to minimize God. So live a life where your sins are small and your God is big. If we are to live in a way that is complementary uh, to our fellow man, yet grounded in the word of God, our lives will be exemplary. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the phrase following that in Galatians chapter 5 is a beautiful passage. It says there is no law against these things. There's no law against these things. So if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be these things. The fruit is not the gift. The gift is the Holy Spirit. The thing is, is how are you going to let the Holy Spirit work through you to produce those fruits? And then you will have an exemplary life because obviously you live the life where when you have sinned, you have confessed your sin and God is faithful and just and he has forgiven your sins and cleansed you from all unrighteousness. And when you do that, if you will, the fruit can hang from your branches of your life because the Holy Spirit has freedom to move and work within you. But if we have sin in us, we are not going to be able to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We need to live exemplary lives, and that begins with our respect to authority. Flip back to the beginning of this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I've entitled this, A Charge to Respect Authority. 
And in today's world, there is a lack of respect for authority. All the way around, in the home with mom and daddy, there's a lack of respect in, in culture, whether that be people that are our police officers or uh, first responders, whether that be our government. Just don't get me wrong, there's a lot of questions there, but we still can respect them, okay? But there is a charge to respect authority. Look there in verses 1 and 2. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, uh, Galen, a second century medical writer, estimated that one third of the population of Pergamum of Asia Minor were all slaves. They were all slaves. Modern scholars uh, have come to believe that this figure may even be too low. And it, uh, most likely in cities like Ephesus, Athens, and Rome, 50% of the population were slaves. 50% of the population were slaves. So, it, so this issue of slavery was a very practical issue for Paul to address in the Christian life. Because if 50% of your population are slaves, then most likely many of your slaves are believers in Christ. Many of them are believers in Christ. Ancient slavery was also a varied phenomenon. It's not like what we picture in our minds today. There was a variety of different uh, settings of slavery. Private slaves could be found in great misery, grinding flour and chains at a meal. And a lot of times that's what we think of when we think of slavery. We think of the most harshest conditions. And honestly, it's, it's terrible. No matter how it is, it's still a terrible setting to be in. But private slaves could also be found in relative prosperity, working on their own small businesses. Hardly different in most respects from their free neighbors, except that all their profits were at the disposal of their masters. Public slaves could be important government officials or menial attendants in the public baths. I mean, it was, it was such a drastic difference. So if someone said they were a slave, I mean, that could mean a host of things. Like I said, some could be in chains, grinding at the millstone, and then others are running their own business, basically. All they got to do is give back whatever their master says, hey, you need to give us 75%, or you need to give us 50%, or, or 90%. But yet they had the freedom to come and go as they pleased. They ran their own business. There was a great variety of, of how slavery was seen back in this time uh, in, in, in Paul's writing. And Paul's instructions is toward these these people that found themselves as believers but yet under uh, masters, he writes, it, it tells us in the Zondervan commentary, Paul's instructions of the respectful attitude of slaves toward their masters comes against the backdrop of a standard theme in ancient comedies, the arrogant back-talking slave. So what he's telling us this is, is you know, uh, before coming to Christ, it was commonly understood that they'd be arrogant and they'd back-talk their masters. Okay? So when they come to faith, if they had masters who were believers too, they shouldn't work any less diligently. They should honestly work more diligently because then the masters are glorified and, and, and make more money, and then they would too if they were in this, you know, the good setting, obviously. Um, but they should treat them well. Christian slaves were not to look down on their believing masters, but rather to serve them even better, realizing that they were benefiting their brothers in Christ. This would give added incentive to their service their masters were dear to them 
is how it was written in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Warren Wiersbe uh, wrote uh, about an account that he dealt with one time. Now, this is more modern. But Wiersbe wrote, I recall counseling this young lady who resigned from a secular job to go to a Christian organization. She had been there about a month and was completely disillusioned. The girl said, I thought it was going to be heaven on earth. Instead, there are nothing but problems. Wearsby asked the young lady, are you working just as hard for your Christian boss as you did for your other boss? The look on her face gave me the answer. Try working harder, Wearsby advised, and show him real respect. Just because all of you in the office are saved doesn't mean you can do less than your best. She took my advice and her problems cleared up. You know, a lot of times if we find that our boss has something in common with us, we think we can just kind of smooth on through, you know? We think, oh, I should be able to come in late or I can leave early or whatever. I can take a pen home or paper clip, whatever. I'm just kidding. But, you know, we, we, we think we can do these things because, oh, they're like us. They're my friend or they're a Christian or whatever it may be. No. If anything, you work more diligently because, listen, the Bible tells us that we should work heartily. The scripture tells us in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. We should be found as the most diligent, faithful workers in the workplace. We should not be overdone by someone who is lost and without Christ. Christ has redeemed us. He saved us to a better life. One day, listen, we're just going to be able to praise God. While we're here, let's just serve him. Whatever it may be, whether, you're, whether you work at, which I think is a vital place, but I'm just going to say this, uh, Tire Living Express, man, I, I appreciate those guys. You know what? Because I don't change my oil. I go up there and they change my oil. Whether you're change oil at Tire Living Express, or whether you work at Walmart, I worked at Walmart for seven years, whether you work at Walmart, or whether you work as an engineer or foreign engineer, or whether you work as a school teacher or you've been a, whatever it is you're working at, Work as though you're working for the Lord. Because if you're only going to work up to the standard of the men or women that are above you, you're always going to work to a standard below you. Work to, work to honor Christ. Work in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ. Don't be lazy. Don't procrastinate. And listen, this is a message to me. Listen, we need to be working and be diligent and be faithful in, in our service to our Lord. Graduates, as well as all of us, need to realize that no matter where we are in life, whether at the top or the bottom, we are to live exemplary lives while in and under authority. And we will never be without authority. Some people say, oh, if I get up to here, I'll be without authority. No, you're always going to have somebody in authority over you. No matter where you go, you might be the cream of the crop. You might be the CEO of Walmart. But you know what, though? You know who, he is, uh, who he's got a master? The consumer. The consumer is his master. And you may think, I want to work all the way up to the top. But you know what, though? If the consumer is not buying your product, you know what happens to him? He loses everything. Right? There's always a master. There's always somebody in charge. And, of course, Christ is always in charge of us all. So live in a way that Christ may be seen in your lives by the way you treat those you lead or by the way you treat those that lead you. Always do that. Live in a way that Christ may be seen in your lives by the way you treat those that you lead or by the way you treat those that lead you. And this has a lot to do with our relationships. It has a lot to do with our relationships. Look at verses 3 through 5. 
If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which comes envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. So this is a charge to godly relationships. We need to have godly relationships in our lives. Paul writes to Timothy telling him to avoid people who have these actions and thoughts within them. Teachers of false doctrine. Avoid those folks. Especially for our graduates. You go to college. Sometimes you stay close. Sometimes you go off. I mean, brokers at UAB now. Some of you, you went off to college. You know what can uh, influence you. And today of ever, there's a time where people are influenced. You're not only influenced in person, you're influenced over the social media. I mean, it's constant, all the time, constant, into the mind, into the eyes, and sometimes even into the heart if you let it get there. There's influence. You've got to stay away from teachers of false doctrine. Don't watch every preacher that comes on the TV. Don't believe every preacher that comes up on TikTok or on a reel on Facebook. You can't believe it all. You know what you believe? You believe the Word of God. You go somewhere where people preach from the Word of God, not their opinion. You come to this, and you say, God, what is truth from this? Which all of it is truth, but what is truth that applies to me today? What is this? And that's where you go. And there's a charge. Teachers of false doctrine, avoid them. People of unwholesome words, what does that mean? That means all kind of stuff. People that are negative. People that draw, bring you down. People that are destructive in their thoughts and their minds and how they disperse it. People who holler and fuss and always got something to complain about. Get away from them. They want to scream and holler. Let them just scream and holler somewhere else. Say, I don't want none of that in my life. Unwholesome words. They always want to tear you down. Something you've done. You've done something good. They're going to find the one little negative thing and pull it out. Get them out of your life. I'm not telling you that you can just avoid some folks. Some folks you, you're going to have to deal with, manage. But I'm telling you this, people who have unwholesome words, limit your time with them. Limit your time with them. Who controls your schedule? Who controls your schedule? You don't need to be around people with unwholesome words. They're saying filthy stuff. I mean, it, there's all kinds of different ways you can interpret of what that means. But it's, it's people who just are just filthy mouth. Cuss words, you know, derogatory, sexual innuendos, all that kind of stuff. Man, stay away from them, folks. It's going to get in your mind, and then you're going to think about it. Be careful. Stay away. Get away from them. People who disregard godly doctrine. It says at the uh, latter part of verse 3, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He's, he's talking about, uh, they, let's see, anyone who teaches otherwise, anyone who teaches uh, unwholesome words, anyone who teaches uh, to the doctrine, which of course is talking about getting away from godliness, people who disregard godly doctrine, prideful people. It says there in verse 4, he is proud. Listen, we know that pride comes before a fall. Get away from those folks. They're going to pull you down with them. They're prideful. They're going to pull you down with them. Get away from argumentative people. It says, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. You ever dealt with argumentative people? It's just everything turns into an argument. I just want to turn this into an argument. I just want to win. Stop. Stop. 
Can we just have a conversation? Can we just have a conversation? But this is the goal of those argumentative people. They want to create envy. They want you to be jealous of what they got. They want to cause strife, reviling, which that's abusive language toward others. Evil suspicions. They want to start terrible gossip about people. You know what they did? You know what so-and-so did? You know what so-and-so did not do? Whatever, you know? That's, that's evil people. That's people that want to, they're just argumentative people. They just want to cause problems. Get away from them. Get away from them. Going off to college, being graduates, you've got to stay away from them, folks. Stay away from them, folks. Stay positive. Listen, I, I'm, I know there's preachers out there that basically all they preach is positivity. But the bottom line is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good in staying positive. And a lot of positive comes out of a life that is positively in Christ. So stay in Christ. Stay in Christ. Avoid these argumentative people. These people also want to abuse the pulpit or the word by using only as a means of gain for themselves. Look at what it says there. It says, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. All you got to do is look on TV. I could call out some names. You got Joel Osteen. You got... Uh, all these other folks, uh, Creflo Dollar calling his church to buy him a new Learjet because he needs it because he don't want to ride with common people to go minister to other folks. Well, who do you think you're ministering to? You know, whatever. I mean, you, 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 false teachers are all over the place. All over the place, men and women alike. Better be careful what you're watching on TV. Some of you folks have weird theological beliefs too. Be careful what you watch on TVN. Trinity Broadcasting Network, there's a lot of goofballs on there, if I can just say it in the most honest way. They're weird. They're weird beliefs. They're prosperity gospel. They tell you God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise, or he wants to give you everything that you ever dreamed of. No, we don't, because a lot of things we dream of is not good for us. <laughs> it's the truth. People say, follow your heart. Oh, please, please. Let's, let's just stay away from that. What you need to do is follow the Word of God. Follow after Christ. Listen, these, these people, they're out for all they want to do is abuse the pulpit. And it says, from which withdraw yourself. From people who exhibit these characteristics, withdraw yourself. Get away from them. Stay away from them. And even though this is directed mostly toward false teachers, this is primarily directed toward them, we can heed this warning for people with these characteristics. Stay away from these folks. They will drag you down into sin They'll drag you down into depravity. They'll drag you down into depression. Get away from these folks. Stay away from them. There's a charge to be content. Look there in verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10. It says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Boy, what a, what a great statement. Everybody needs to write that on top of there. I told you how you could write memory verses on your mirror in your bathroom or in your bedroom. Take a dry erase marker. It'll come right off. Now godliness... Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. I think we all need to, to, need to put that into our hearts and lives. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For some for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's a charge to be content. A charge to be content. Listen, 
The word contentment means an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. An inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 4.11 where he writes, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul emphasizes the truth that needs are to be met. And God will develop a contentment with these items, especially like food and clothing. I mean, it's specifically listed. I would think the Lord would want us to have a secure and safe place of living, but I'm also putting words into Scripture. But that is my thought. I think the Lord wants us to have that as well. The ultimate point here is not to put yourself out for financial gain at the expense of your character, your relationship with God, and physical health. That's not what God wants. Paul has seen the effects of those who have pursued this pathway to their own demise. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He tells you, I mean, obviously to use that language and to say that type of sentence, he's seen people who's done that. You know, Paul was a tent maker, right? On the side, when he was preaching the gospel, he's also making tents. And so he's probably seen those guys that have abandoned faith and said, oh, I've got to make money, I've got to make money, I've got to make money, I've got to make money. And in the process, they've damaged their character. They've destroyed who they are in Christ because everything has been about making the almighty dollar. They've lost family, they've lost friends, they've lost health because they thought everything in life is about the almighty dollar. Everything in life is all about Christ. And if you'll trust Christ and pursue Christ, he will meet our needs. And sometimes he does give us some wants, but he will definitely meet our needs. And don't confuse your needs with your wants. Have dreams, but have them birthed from a devoted prayer life, not a demoted prayer life. Have dreams from a devoted prayer life, not a demoted prayer life. This text clearly points to us having earthly needs, and for our ongoing good health, we must pursue the right means to obtain them, but our efforts should never be underhanded or deceitful. And I think that's what happens so many times with people's lives. They, they start, you know, they start looking, for example, for our graduates. I'm not, I'm not saying this is what they're doing, but I know there's many young people, they finish school, what do they look for? They look for the, for the career that might make them the most money. Let me find what's going to make me the most money. Or they go into gobs of debt to get an education in something that will make them gobs of money. But in, in reverse, it actually has pierced them through. They're terrible financial debt. They find out they don't even like to work in that field. Because you know what? They ain't prayed about it. All they want to do is make money. We've got to pursue. As a husband, you know, I've got to pursue what is best for my family? It might not be that going to the place that makes that'll pay me the most money is the, mo the best thing I need to do. I need to go to the place where God wants me to be. And where I, when I am where God wants me to be, all my needs will be met. I might not be able to get every one. And that's okay. That teaches me contentfulness with what I've got. It teaches me to be humble. It teaches me to be submissive to the Lord's will. Because as my Lord... As Romans 10, 9 says, if you will confess me as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised us up from the dead, you shall be saved. If he is my Lord, he knows what's going to be best for me. I may not, but he does. It'll teach me con content, being content in everything that I have. 
You know, and money is temporary. Money is temporary. There's no material items that can backpack along with us to heaven. There's no material items that will backpack along with us to heaven. But placing hope is something, tip, because placing hope is something temporary. is fleeting. It's fleeting. Emphasis, if you look there on verse 7, man enters the world possessing nothing in order to teach him that he will exit the world in the same manner, taking nothing with him. This is divine means of showing man that material wealth is relatively insignificant. He should pursue the most important things mentioned in verse 11, which we're about to get through in just a second. Do not let the money, do not let the love of money drive your future, but rather your love of Christ. Don't, don't let the, the love of money drive your future, but let the love of Christ. In your love of Christ, determine what he has gifted you with, along with cultivating the spirit within you. And see Christ fashion your life in and through the fruit of the spirit. When money becomes our central focus of success, when money dries up, so does our spirit. When Christ is our central focus of success, when money dries up, our spirit continues to rest in Christ and hope in his never-failing love. But if your success, if, if money becomes central, becomes a central focus of your success, when it dries up, your spirit will dry up too. That's the reason why Christ needs to be the central focus. That way, if, if money dries up, everything isn't set in something that's temporary. It's set in something that's an eternal. And there's a joy that comes from knowing Christ and trusting Christ that's unlike anything else. No money. You talk to people and, and you hear people on, uh, I've heard several state this uh, about, you know, they've achieved everything. I think Jim Carrey even said, you know, people think money's great and fame's great. Come live, a, come live in my shoes for a while. See what it's like. It's not all it cracks up to be. The greatest thing is to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. When we focus, when we focus what we focus on in life is what we pursue. And in verses 11 and 12, Paul writes to Timothy to direct his attention to this command of pursuit. Look there in verses 11 and 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee the person. Flee the false teacher. Flee discontentedness. Flee the love of money. Flee these things. But this is what you need to pursue. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue patience. Pursue gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is a charge to pursue. This is for each and every one. These are the things that we all should be pursuing in our lives. Graduates, these are the things you need to be pursuing in your life. You need to pursue righteousness. This is confirming, uh, conforming to God's will in one's thinking and mentality. That's righteousness. Conform to God's will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, Scripture tells us. You better renew it now because I'm going to tell you, when you go to college and you get into these biology classes and science classes and all these things like that, they're going to try to conform your mind to their thinking. You better get it conformed to the will of God now, to the word of God now, because they're going to try to change it. They're going to try to change it. 
You better know what you believe. You better know that life begins at conception. You better know that life is valuable in the womb, out the womb, through life, and at the edge of the grave. Every single part of life is valuable. You need to know that. We need to know that God created the heavens and the earth. It wasn't a big bang, unless you just want to say when God spoke, bang, it happened. It wasn't some rare thing. God spoke and then it became into existence. You got to know these things. You need to know it in your heart. You need to be able to stand on it. You need to know what God says about when God created them. He created them male and female. You need to know these things. Because you're going to be told what to believe. And you're going to be told if you don't believe what they believe that you're wrong. And you're not only just wrong, you're, you hate us. You hate people. Listen, that's not the truth. That's not the truth. It's so far from the truth. I have more compassion on folks that are struggling with things like that than I do on regular folks. You know why? Because the devil's got to hold their mind. The devil's got to hold to their mind. So where should we be most compassionate? Not saying that we're so uh, uh, approving, but where should we be most compassionate? It's to those that the devil's got a hold of and is telling them, telling them all these lies and then they're believing it. This science, you know, there was a big bang and out of, out of two molecules. Well, who created the molecules? Well, I, I, okay, well then just hush your mouth. Who created the molecules that made it come together? You have no answer for that, do you? You know why? Because you, you ain't read the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're saying it had to be created for something. I'm telling you who created that from nothing. Okay? We got, we've got to know. We've got to have our minds and will. We've got to conform our minds to God's will and to his thinking. We need to pursue godliness. That's proper reverence and obedience to God. We need to pursue godliness. We need to pursue faith. That's trust in God that grows stronger. Our faith should not grow weaker. Our faith should go stronger. Why does your faith grow stronger? You step out and you do something more in the will of God when you ain't done that before. Well, I've never prayed before. Pray. I've never read my Bible for five minutes. Read your Bible for five minutes. I've, I've never went to Sunday school. I'm going to step into Sunday school. I've never shared the gospel with somebody. I'm sharing the gospel. You're stepping out in faith. Cultivate your faith. I can't do it for you. You've got faith. I don't got your faith. I got my faith. And you've got to grow and pursue faith. But if you never try it, if you never do it, your faith ain't going to grow. You're going to be a stagnant believer that maintains a place on a pew, hoping, hoping for a mansion in heaven. I know. I, I ain't got to hope for it. I know for it. And because I know for my place in heaven, I step out in faith and I do something different. I was scared to death to get on a plane to go to Mexico. You know what I did? I stepped on a tiny plane, which might not have been the smartest thing. But I got on a little bitty plane. I was about as big as the plane. And I got in there. And I flew around. I said, well, if I can fly in this little video thing, I can fly in a great big one. And, uh, of course, I didn't know that I'd be flying for about eight hours over an ocean either. So, but nonetheless, you take small steps of faith that lead you to big acts of faith to where you have a big faith, where you say, I can do this through, in and through Christ. Not in and of myself, because I'm stepping out in faith. I'm trusting Christ. We need to pursue love. That's a maturing affection for God and others. We need to pursue the love of Christ. We need to pursue patience. 
There's perseverance in life and service. We need to have patience. If there's ever a time in this world today where patience is needed, it's today. I mean, we search something on our phone, and if we just so happen to be out of range for the Wi-Fi where the Internet's trying to pick up, we, we get frustrated, right? We can't get it within the first five seconds or one second that we text it. Oh, something's wrong with the Internet. Something's wrong with this. I'm impatient. I'm getting angry. My phone ain't working. Calm down. Calm down. And I say this to me, too. I'm not talking to you alone. I'm talking to me. It's okay. The microwave still works, you know? It's going to get there. we got to pursue patience. How do you do that? Well, you put yourself in situations where your patience might be tested. People say, I don't want my patience tested. Well, then you don't want to be alive. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Your patience is going to be tested as long as you're alive and you're around people, right? I worked at Walmart for seven years. Trust me, I know. Patience gets tested. Meekness, pursue meekness. Meekness is power under control. You need to pursue that. Pursue how to control yourself. God gives us all different power, if you will, not like, <laughs> not like superheroes on the movies we watch today. But God gives us power, and God gives us power over ourselves through him. And, and we need to understand how to control that. That's what meekness is. I mean, Christ, had, he was so meek and lowly. He had all the power in the world at, at his fingertips at the sound of his voice, you know. The devil even said, you can call down 10,000 angels if you want to. He could have. Oh, yeah, he could have. But he was meek because he knew he had to do what he had to do for God's glory. He had to accomplish all the things that needed to be done for righteousness' sake. He was meek. So we need to pursue those things. We need to fight the good fight. We need to combat sin and compel the sinners to Christ. Fight the good fight fight we need to lay hold on eternal life fully realize that salvation matures the believer and when we think about all these different charges that i've given a charge to example a charge to uh, a charge to godly relationships a charge to respect authority a charge to be content and a charge to pursue when we think about all these charges that we have, we all can see how we should live in our communities, how we should live in our workplaces, and how we should live in our world. Our closest circles are our realms of influence and realms from which we are influenced. Our closest circles are our realms of influence and realms from which we are influenced. How are we living? How are we taking this charge that Paul wrote? To Timothy, where are you? Where are you? Matter of fact, who, who are you? And I know this sounds silly, and uh, but why are you? Why are you? And you may say, seriously, you need to know why you should take the charge to be an example. You need to know why you need to respect authority. You need to know why to have godly relationship. Why should I be content? Why should I pursue a holy life? Why do you do those things? It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. It's for his name's sake. That's the reason why we do those things. Our lives are for Christ and our futures are through Christ. In living in the charge given by Paul to Timothy, we can know our why of life. 
we can know our why of life. Today, where are you? Where are you spiritually? Who are you? Who are you in Christ? And why are you? Why are you living the way you are? Is the way you're living bringing glory to God?